If you were to drive the back way from Dallas, Texas to Shreveport, Louisiana, you'd probably take a road called Highway 80. And off of Highway 80, there's an exit sign for a tiny little town called Big Sandy. Population, just over about a thousand people or so. Big Sandy's location in the rural piney woods of East Texas made it an odd place for a college campus that would attract students from all over the states and literally all over the world. But because of a land donation made by a church member back in the 1950s, Big Sandy became one of the homes of the Worldwide Church of God's college network called Ambassador University. And although it was located in what many might call whoop-whoop, most people felt lucky to be there. After all, this was a special place. It was God's college, where the chosen sent their children to be educated and, frankly, to find a spouse, too. But to me, Ambassador is special for another reason, and that's because it's the place where I first met today's guest, DJ Grothy. From 13 Media, I'm Trisha Jenkins, and this is Worldwide, the Unchosen Church. DJ was sort of a character at Ambassador, if you will. He was mostly known for three things. The first was his insatiable curiosity and love for debate. You could often find him in the dining hall late into the night, verbally sparring over some philosophical point while drinking coffee and tea. The second is that DJ was a skilled magician. So people were always coming up to him, asking him to perform a card trick or a sleight of hand trick. He could take a dollar bill or a newspaper and rip it up into three or four pieces and then somehow get it all back together to make it look brand new and hand back to the unsuspecting person in the audience. The other thing that made DJ stand out at Ambassador, though, was that he was somewhat openly gay at a college and in a church whose leader made it clear that he viewed homosexuality in this way. God gave them up under vile affections for even the men, leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust one toward another, homosexuality. And today they try to glorify that, and it's coming to the place where it's gaining public acceptance. Now, homosexuality is going to be absolutely accepted. You may have a homosexual as president of the United States. They glorify evil and lust and perverted minds. I recently caught up with DJ again when I went out to L.A., and he took me to his favorite haunt, the Magic Castle an exquisite institution that's essentially a private country club for professional magicians and their guests. At the Magic Castle, DJ is known for his community involvement and his love of magic, but he's also known for his work in the skeptic community. For decades, he was a leader at the Center of Inquiry, and he later became the president of the James Randi Educational Foundation, both groups are nonprofits which work to mitigate belief in the paranormal and the pseudosciences. DJ's eventual involvement in the skeptic movement, though, I think would have come as a surprise to most people who knew him at Ambassador. 
And that's because he was one of the few people there that had actually joined the Worldwide Church of God on his own accord. He wasn't born into it. And frankly, he was pretty fanatical about the church's teachings back then. I wanted to sit down and talk to DJ about why as a teenager, and specifically as a gay teenager, he thought that joining a doomsday apocalyptic cult and then moving to a tiny Bible college in the middle of conservative rural East Texas sounded like a good idea. I joined the Worldwide Church of God on my own as a teenager, and it was no small feat because as people who are familiar with the theology of Armstrongism will attest, it's not easy to join the Worldwide Church of God. There's this notion of being chosen where you have to sort of prove that God wants you in the church and they make you jump through a lot of hoops. So when I first expressed interest in the church for a good six months, the answer I was given initially was wait until you're 18, wait until you're older. Let's see if this is not just a fad or a phase for you because it was unusual for a young person to join. But I bought it all hook, line, and sinker. And I was so passionate about the doctrines and the teachings that I think that was in its own way sort of charming to other members of the church. So I joined early on. I joined when I was 14 years old, the same year that I came out as gay, right? Not widely, but to my family and, and actually to the minister. And the same year I started, of all things, doing like magic professionally. So I was a teenage magician. So these three things, as disparate and unusual and unrelated as they seem, they all had something to do with the, for, the belief formation that I went through regarding Armstrongism and my place in the universe and all of that stuff. DJ says that he first learned about the church through his mom, who always liked to dabble in fringe religious movements, like those of the Seventh-day Adventists or the Mormons. She had actually taken him to see Armstrong speak when he was 12 years old, and eventually she subscribed to The Plain Truth, which DJ then eventually started reading. By the time he grew increasingly excited about the Worldwide Church of God, though, his mom had already moved on to explore another religious group. But DJ says that the theology of the WCG was very persuasive to him. When I landed on the Worldwide Church of God, it, it wasn't merely an attraction. It was the worldview that explained everything. One of the things I find so interesting about the Worldwide Church of God is Herbert W. Armstrong, unwittingly maybe, was a kind of American religious genius. And he did a sort of greatest hits. He picked and chose the best doctrines from all the wacky fringes and somehow put them all together in a, a set of beliefs that would seem otherwise very incompatible with all of these others called British Israelism. This belief that Ephraim and Manasseh, you know, two of the lost tribes of Israel, grew up over the ages to become England or the British Empire and America. And that was a big attraction to me. This British Israelism was just amazing to me because there were mysteries of history. Like, why did Britain 
have an empire, this little island? How did it have this worldwide empire? Why did the Industrial Revolution happen first in Britain and then in America and not in any of these other countries? Why did America become an industrial superpower? Well, the answer is not technological innovation. The answer is prophecy. God made nations out of these ancient tribes in Israel, and they became England and, uh, and the United States. And once you had that key, then you understood current events, world politics, geopolitics. The Worldwide Church of God also offered up another key that was very attractive to DJ as a young person looking for his place in the world. When you're a teenager, you sort of think not only is what you're going through unique, but that you're the center of the universe, you know, and Armstrongism taught a, a sort of doctrine that you are indeed the center of the universe. The 100,000 or so people in the Worldwide Church of God were the only people in all of human history that God chose. And that appealed to all my, you know, youthful, maybe immature grandiosity. And then, of course, when we got to Ambassador College, Ambassador University, that same sort of grandiosity was in the air. You know, what was the phrase? This is God's college, as if you'd find God's bubblegum underneath a desk, like it's the college God went to. No, it was the one institution of higher learning that the creator of the universe gave his seal of approval to. So how great is that to go to that one place? So while DJ was attracted to the belief system of the WCG and the specialness that it made him feel, community that the church provided was equally alluring. In other words, if the doctrines of the church seduced DJ to the WCG, it was the community he found that made him stay. So I got, I think, so many psychological needs met by joining the Worldwide Church of God. You know, uh, sociologists of religion will point to that being one of the sorts of things that cause people to join a cult. You know, the emotionally satisfying things you get out of it. It's not just epistemological. It's not just truth claims that you're evaluating. It's the community. And boy, did I get that in spades. Okay, so I had to stop DJ right there because I was a little confused by this claim. The Worldwide Church of God, at least how I remembered it, was not a particularly inclusive group, especially as it related to the LGBT community. So I wanted to ask DJ how he found refuge and how he found community as a gay teen in a church that viewed homosexuality as a sin. Well, I wasn't happy about being gay. You know, I came out as being gay and then I sort of went back in, right? I was involved peripherally in the reparative therapy movement, the ungaying of yourself sort of thing. And the Worldwide Church of God had just begun its own lighthearted attempt at addressing that issue. So don't be homophobic, don't exclude gays. God calls some gay people to our church because after all, during the thousand year reign of Jesus Christ, there will have to be some people with that experience to help formerly gay people during Jesus's reign to deal with their experience of being gay and then ungaying themselves. So I remember coming out to all the local ministers, you know, most members of the church had no idea. 
but the ministers did. And I was sort of eager to tell them, this is my struggle. This is what I'm going through. And boy, they just took a lot of interest in helping me and being there for me. I remember one of the ministers who was an evangelist in the church, which as uh, you'll know, is the highest ranks of minister in the church, but he was in St. Louis at the time. I remember he would sort of two, three days a week for a a spell there. He'd pick me up in the mid morning and I'd drive around with him, you know, while he was doing his ministerial thing, he'd do a visit and I would just hang out in the car and we'd talk for hours and how meaningful that was to me. You know, that was a big deal in my life. And it, uh, you know, getting that sort of attention and that love and that sort of sincere interest in who I was and who I was going to become was fantastic. Aside from the loopy theology, I'd recommend that to everybody. Okay, I 100% take DJ's point, but I don't want to give the Worldwide Church of God too much credit here. DJ says that while the ministers he knew were incredibly compassionate and caring, if they had thought that he was an active gay teen, their relationship to him would have been much different. So no one said you can't feel homosexual feelings because you're broken and still be a Christian because God called you here. Of course you can because God wants you here. You've been called. But they would have been universal in their condemnation of gay activity, right? If... If I ever said to, you know, the evangelist, if I ever told him, by the way, I'm going on a date, it'd be the end of the world. I remember it at Ambassador College when I asked one of my professors I was really close to, and he had a really positive influence on my life, but I was on the cusp of sort of personally accepting my homosexuality, not talking to him about it. We'd talk about everything else under the sun, but I wouldn't talk about that. I was sort of figuring it out for myself. I remember asking him, hey, can I borrow your boat this next Saturday? Because I want to take one of my friends out on the lake. And it was a boy, right? But I never told this professor was a boy. And and the boy wasn't gay, right? He was just a close friend who accepted me and all that stuff. But I, I was head over heels for him. I remember us walking to Lake Lomo and, you know, figuring out the boat thing. And this professor was working on another boat with a friend at the time under like a shed or something. And he was so visibly appalled that I was with a, a man, a young man, to go out on the lake. He continued letting me use his boat. Like he was, he didn't make a big show and confront me then, but like the Monday after or the Sunday after I got a very stern letter and I was summoned and we needed to talk about that. And I needed to assure him that we're not in a sexual relationship. He's my straight friend. He's accepting me. We're just, you know, spending time together. So I don't want to give the impression that the ministers or the relationships I had with leaders in the church, that they were progressive in any sense. They were empathic, right? They showed sympathy for my plight, being a gay teen, a gay man in his early 20s. They weren't accepting of homosexuality at all. They loved me because I said I didn't love my homosexuality and I was fighting against it. I was struggling. You know, I thought maybe I could marry a woman, you know, miracles happen. This is like an illness, you know, God could heal me. All of this 
was part of the mix. Even, even at the churches in St. Louis I went to, no one said, we accept you for being gay. They said, we accept your struggle as a closeted homosexual. It was sort of romanticized that this is just my struggle, right? This is something I have to deal with. Other people have other things they struggle with. The Apostle Paul had the thorn in his side, whatever it was. And so God calls people with their own idiosyncratic struggles. This is the torch you must bear. This is the thorn in your side. So as you can tease out from DJ's comments, he finally began to accept who he was as a gay man a lot more in his college years. And he says that the friendships he made at God's college were actually really important in that process of self-acceptance. Before I got to college, I was fascinated with this burgeoning movement of reparative therapy. Now it's a quack therapy and it could be very harmful to, to folks. And in fact, not only is it not recommended, there are parts of the Western world that consider it so harmful. It's not even allowed as a therapy because it could cause so much trauma. But I was fascinated by the project of well, is it possible for me to become straight, right? And this is before I learned anything about psychology or the sciences of human nature, the, the biology of sex and gender and sexuality difference. You know, I don't think anyone in the Worldwide Church of God really believed in the biology of difference of any kind. So I didn't know any of this. I was sort of scientifically illiterate. I was a well-meaning, you know, conflicted gay teenager joining an apocalyptic Christian cult. And I thought, well, is it possible to ungay myself buying into the worldview a lot of people hold, which is that we are a blank slate that, you know, the reason I'm gay is because of something my parents did. It's hogwash, but I, I believed it at the time. And what if I join this group? Can I turn straight? By the time I got to college, I no longer believed that I could turn straight. I thought I'd be single the rest of my life. So I didn't believe I'd turn straight, but neither did I believe that being gay is okay, right? It was into, you know, my sophomore, junior year that I, part and parcel with the religious skepticism that was growing, did I come to accept my sexuality and it helped that, you know, I fell in love with a boy at college and, you know, all that drama. And he was an adorable straight boy, but loved me anyway. And I had other meaningful relationships. I don't know if you want me to mention, you know, that you were one of them. Maybe you want to leave that out. But, you know, had those things not happened, I'd probably still be a miserable, conflicted homosexual in a cult. You know, what's that line there? But for the grace of God, go I. Like I lucked out. It makes me grateful. The times that I've said that, uh, to my friends who have had some trauma in the World Wide Church of God, they bristle. And I want to try to be very sensitive to the fact that other people did not have this great experience, right? But even when it was bad or domineering or a minister had too much say in my life and all these things that sociologists of religion say are bad, you don't want to go to a church that's like that. Well, nonetheless, they worked for me at the time, and I'm grateful. DJ left the Worldwide Church of God a long time ago. And if you ask him, what was the thing that led you out? He, like so many other people that I know, will say it wasn't just one thing. It was an intersection of a lot of things. 
And for DJ, that intersection had to do with the skepticism that he developed from being part of the magic community when he was young, and how that skepticism only continued to broaden, especially, and somewhat oddly, while he was at what we now jokingly call the Colts College. I think my background in magic made me skeptical of a whole host of supernatural claims, especially things like psychic powers and and faith healing and fortune telling, stuff like that, because you could very easily track the methods of those professional deceivers who are unethical, like Ernest Angley or the faith healers or, you know, street level psychics with neon lights where you go and you pay money and they engage in sophisticated psychological techniques to deceive you into believing they know things about you that they could only know were it supernatural. When in fact, my background in magic revealed how these things are done. So that initial skepticism later at college broadened a bit more widely, I'm reminded of Diderot's line, there's nothing like a Jesuit education to make you an atheist. Well, at Ambassador University, I think I got a pretty solid liberal arts education and it supported my just skepticism. So I remember in one class, one of my favorite professors whom I became very close to, he used as a textbook in one of his classes, a book by an evangelical Christian a historian of religion, if you'd be generous enough to call him that, called Understanding the Times. It was by David Noble, who his co-author, Tim LaHaye, also wrote all those left behind books. And this book, Understanding the Times, purported to teach the student the, and there are only four, the four worldviews extant in the world. So there was biblical Christianity, there was new age stuff, which I was skeptical of already because of my background in magic. And Marxism was one. And then there was one he described as being called secular humanism. So I'm learning this at Ambassador College. Secular humanism sort of, as I'm reading it, it sort of turned me on. And it, and this textbook mentioned a magazine called Free Inquiry Magazine, which is like the secular humanist journal of opinion, Right. I went to the Bible College Library, and they subscribed to it, and I start reading Free Inquiry magazine. So the magic and the, the skepticism of magic of other religions and supernatural claims, and my introduction to this idea of secular humanism, I started becoming sort of a religious skeptic at Ambassador College. I remember having long discussions, debates with professors that I really respected about these things. But as you might suspect, when DJ told some of his mentors about his newfound philosophy, they were less than supportive. Something that kind of crushed a young DJ. I remember a big blow to me. I was depressed for longer than I'd ever been in my life. I remember almost two weeks, I was sour, I skipped classes, when one of the professors I really liked told me to throw away, just throw away a book that was causing doubt on my end. And that just felt so 
antithetical to like what Herbert W. Armstrong would say, which is, don't believe me, believe the Bible, you know, study it and argue with it. And so I wanted to do my homework. I wanted to address these challenges to Armstrongism and religion in general, a fundamentalist. First, it was a challenge to fundamentalist religion and then supernaturalism of all stripes. And I leave Ambassador. I eventually go to Washington University for grad school. I intern for Free Inquiry Magazine, that organization. It's called the Center for Inquiry, the Council for Secular Humanism. While I was in grad school, I eventually get hired there. All of this is, you know, a couple of years after I lost my faith. But my experience with that, I think, informed this larger project of skepticism that the seeds of which were probably already there when I joined the church when I was 14. They just weren't comprehensive. It was like, be a skeptic of that, that fake magician, that psychic, fake psychic who's doing a magic trick. You know how the magic trick's done. So you know to be skeptical of some of these claims. And that circle of skepticism just kept broadening, widening out until I was skeptical of my own deeply held beliefs and sort of lost the faith. DJ considers himself pretty lucky, though, because he says under different circumstances, he really could have stopped in what he called a sort of nihilistic rejection of belief in general. But he's so thankful that he found a philosophy to give his life meaning through the lens of secular humanism. You know, everybody, when they're approaching 50, I guess, they start looking back and and figuring out narratives that explain their lives, right? When the church itself starts saying, hold on, everyone, we got it wrong. We got it really wrong. Well, when I hear that, and I'm at college, and I'm getting, I'm, you know, for the first time in my life, I'm reading widely in the history of the Western intellectual and literary traditions, and you realize there's a lot to debate, and then the church says, we got a whole lot wrong. That fueled the culmination of me just rejecting all of it. The question later became, within the next year or two, okay, so I don't believe in any of that, but I don't want to be a person who doesn't believe in anything. So what do I believe instead? And enter that magazine, Free Inquiry Magazine, and Paul Kurtz, and Secular Humanism, which is a a non-religious but ethical point of view. You know, is there a good rationale for being a good person, even if there's no God in the universe? And that stuff became very satisfying to me. Those arguments filled the vacuum of my brute atheism that resulted from my earlier skepticism and then the church throwing out all of the doctrines that I was told were central to everything I should believe about the universe. You know, probably the biggest blow for me was when the Worldwide Church of God said, you know what, you're actually not going to become a God. You know, you're not going to get your own universe. What you'll experience is what all the other churches we've always said were evil have taught, which is you'll live for eternity in God's presence. That was a big blow to me. No one in the Worldwide Church of God today believes they're going to get their own universe. You know, Mormons have this great teaching that you get sealed for time and eternity in one of their temples and the Holy of Holies, you know, the man and wife get married. They're going to be like the God and Jesus figure in another universe. That 
is science fiction religion that is so much more satisfying than mainline Christianity. And when the worldwide church of God essentially became mainline Christianity, there was nothing there left for me. Now, almost 25 years after leaving the Worldwide Church of God, DJ admits that the one thing he does still miss about the church is the sense of community that it provided. And it's something that everybody I've talked to says they miss. They don't miss the doctrines, they don't miss the church services. What they miss is that sense of deep belonging to a group larger than themselves. And it's a sense of belonging that is still so hard to find, it seems, in American society today. Social scientists say the benefit of a community like that, belief aside, is the community. And one thing that's been hollowed out in American life in the last 50 years is that social capital. People, you know, what's the example? People don't join bowling leagues anymore. Almost everyone who calls themselves a Christian nonetheless does not go to church. It is a small number of believers who regularly go to church, and I benefited from that. And losing that, you know, that's another way that these these fellowships can have such a stronghold on a member, not that, not, not the threat that you'll go to hell if you don't believe and you don't do thus and so, but that you'll be excommunicated, you'll be disfellowshipped, you'll lose this surrogate family. And that's a kind of psychic death. I miss that. You know, Thomas and I, my partner Thomas, he's formerly Catholic liberal Catholic. We've talked about joining, you know, a UU fellowship or something, the Unitarians, or even going to the liberal pro-gay Catholic church here in West Hollywood, California, not because of anything they say about our place in the universe, but because of what they say about your place here with us, right? I know a lot of secular people. I live in Southern California. So a lot of non-religious people, what do they do if they're people of means to some extent? They join their private club. They join a city club or a country club or a yacht club, or Thomas and I have been longtime members of the Academy of Magical Arts, the Magic Castle. It's not like a religion and it's not really a beloved cause. We're not trying to change the world. It's a private club. The community is paramount and you can get that if you have some privileges in life, right? But if you're in, you know, the lower couple quintiles of socioeconomic status in America. You're, you're very lucky if you forge good relationships with people at work, but you don't have the civil society institutions that made, you know, talk about make America great, that, that meant so much to America that going back to Tocqueville really set America apart compared to Europe. You know, wow, everybody in America is a joiner. They join all these voluntary associations. There are so few of them now I never like to end on a downbeat, but I agree with what DJ is saying here. I have often told people that if you don't go to church or play sports or have a really great group of coworkers, that it is very, very hard to find a sense of community in American culture as an adult. And if I had a wish for the United States, 
it would probably be to find its way back to that strong sense of community. Because I think so many of our problems today have to do with people's sense of alienation, of not caring about other people because they don't feel connected to other people. And I don't know how we fix that. I just know that the Worldwide Church of God, for all of its damage and all of its crazy theologies, seems to have done that one thing right. They provided a tight sense of community, a group that you could depend on. So to end this episode on a more upbeat note, I guess I'd just like to ask you that when you're finished listening, that you pick up your phone and you send a text or maybe you call somebody who's important to you that you haven't talked to in a while to just say, hey, I was thinking about you today. How are you? To see if there's a way that we can make a relationship stronger. Next up on Worldwide, the Unchosen Church. We need millions of dollars, and we are a big enough church to bring that. Take a look at what you have. Gold, silver, 401ks, stocks. What do you have that you don't need? So the Restored Church of God was formed essentially by one minister, Dave Pack, my father-in-law. They set out from early on to essentially be the same thing as the Worldwide Church of God when it was on track. If you want it all back again, you can have it exactly as Mr. Armstrong had it. This is who we are. The pattern of prophecy and money, kind of those two main ingredients in the cocktail are alive and well, and they're causing damage to people. Hello, you just, you had uh, hundreds of false prophecies in the last six years. There are good, sincere people there, just like there are in any other organization. I've heard people who are still over there say it. Where else can I go? There's nowhere else to go. You, on some level, believe you have to stay there. I, I want to give a message of hope. The reality is, there is life thereafter and there is a future. And as scary as it is, you can move on. Before you depart with your comic book collection or your bars of gold, we'd ask that you join us first next week on Wednesday for our interview with Kevin Denis, who discusses his time in the Restored Church of God, a modern-day splinter group that he describes as Armstrong on steroids. Worldwide, The Unchosen Church is written, produced, and hosted by me, Trisha Jenkins, Editing and sound design by the ever-talented 13 Media. Music used in this episode licensed by Soundstripe. If you'd like to send us a question or a comment, please reach out via email at worldwidepod11 at gmail.com or DM us on social media. You can find us on Instagram at worldwidepod and on Twitter and Facebook at worldwidepod11. We hope that your upcoming week will be as utopian as the lamb who peacefully dwells with the lion. Mm -hmm.